Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, I'm guest host Shona Thompson. The latest anti-smoking campaign is going right to the cigarette, with warning labels printed right on the rolling paper. We'll speak with Dr. Robert Schwartz of the Ontario Tobacco Research Unit. The Ford government wants school boards to post detailed information about PD days, among other things. We'll get the reaction from Karen Littlewood of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Canada's women's soccer team may have had a lot on their minds during the tournament, with the interim compensation agreement not reached until four days into the Women's World Cup of Soccer. We'll find out more from Dr. Anne Pegorero of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. What do you think of the new smoking warnings that'll be going right on the cigarettes? That change is coming into effect by next April, trying to get those who are still smoking to quit. We hear more on this from reporter Nathaniel Dove of Global News. Cigarettes cause cancer, organ damage and impotence. Some of the warnings that will greet smokers when they light up, along with new information about how toxic tobacco products are. You know, a message that says poison in every puff is something that is very effective. The Canadian Cancer Society welcomes the change, noting even a 1% reduction in smokers will save lives. Rob Cunningham tells Global News the change will deter young people who could be handed their first cigarette. They may not see the package, but they're gonna see that warning on every cigarette. A, um, A warning on every cigarette can't be missed. Nathaniel Dove, Global News. Well, here to help us understand a little bit more is Dr. Robert Schwartz, who's the executive director of the Ontario Tobacco Research Unit. He's also a professor with the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Good morning and thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You know, a a lot of people have been saying, you know, I'm not really sure that these warning labels put right on the cigarette are going to work, but something has. Because I remember when I was a kid, almost half of everybody smoked. And now... Hardly anybody does. Well, not quite hardly anybody. It may seem that way, but we still have some 15% of Canadians smoking cigarettes on a daily basis. Um, and so that's not hardly anybody in my, in my books. Well, and you are the researcher, so I'm going to go with that. But uh, is this one layer of uh, the reason why people seem to be butting out? Well, the warning labels that we have on cigarette packages, particularly the graphic warnings, do make a difference. Uh, But it's been a comprehensive package of measures that have been taken over the course of a long period of time. And I say long like that on purpose because it's been since the 1960s that we've known about the dangers of cigarettes. And so in 2023, to still have 15% of the population smoking, is not, in my opinion, a great accomplishment. Um, So what has worked? Taxes, public education, uh, smoking restrictions, uh, you can't smoke in public places. Yeah, and uh, graphic warning labels to an extent. I remember at one point uh, there was a restriction within workplaces, uh, bringing it down to only 5% of the floor space could be set aside for smoking. I went up to my general manager, who was a chain smoker, and I asked him where the 5% was. He said, wherever I'm standing. But that has changed. (laughs) Well, you know, um, he was the boss. I guess he got to do that sort of thing. But uh, we don't, there are no indoor designated smoking areas anymore. That's outside of the building, and that's one of the things that I think has made a change in perception? Um, Certainly. uh, Restricting uh, smoking uh, in public places and in workplaces 
makes a big difference. Uh, it is a way to encourage people to stop smoking and to discourage people from starting to smoke. Uh, but clearly, we haven't yet done enough. Well, and one of the things that people have been talking about is um, uh, the advent of vaping. Apparently, there are more vapors than smokers now. Well, that's true amongst young people, uh, amongst youth and young adults. Uh, uh, there are more people who use e-cigarettes or vape uh, than who uh, smoke cigarettes. And uh, if I had a choice, yes, I'd rather have people vaping than smoking. However, if you would not have smoked anyhow, you really shouldn't be vaping because vaping is far from benign. Uh, so we're just starting to learn about the health effects of using e-cigarettes. But experts agree that if you're not a smoker, don't even think about vaping an e-cigarette. Well, vaping seems to be very popular, uh, particularly if it's fruit-flavored vapes, and that seems to be targeted at the younger demographic of smokers. Vapors, yeah, that's true. Uh, That uh, young people and young adults generally, um, they wouldn't vape if there weren't flavors. That's um, fairly uh, well understood. At the same time, Health Canada and other governments uh, think that having flavors in e-cigarettes may actually be helpful for people who are smokers of cigarettes and want to stop smoking by using e-cigarettes. Um, it, well, also, it, 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 it sort of puts the habit into a person when they're very young. And uh, I know that studies that were out of the uh, Brain Institute at McMaster University uh, have revealed that the part of the brain that really develops an understanding of consequence doesn't actually come online in full until you're in your mid-20s. And, well, if you've started smoking at a young age, you're already well addicted before that consequence of it really comes to the forefront of your mind. That's right. Nicotine, the addictive substance in cigarettes and in e-cigarettes, is what causes addiction or dependence. Um, And that's what we're really concerned about, particularly when people start young. Almost everybody who starts to smoke cigarettes starts to smoke when they're young. So some 99% uh, of people who smoke started before the age of 22. We're speaking with Dr. Robert Schwartz, who's the executive director of the Ontario Tobacco Research Unit. He's also a professor with the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Um, one of the things that um, kept sticking in my brain about this, the smokers, at least a lot of the smokers I know, kind of like to think they're a little bit rebellious. And I'm wondering if, you know, if this is actually going to work on that rebellious nature, that they're, they're smoking now as a backlash. Yeah, I think uh, marginally, uh, people who smoke and even people who don't smoke know that it's really bad for you. I mean, that's, you know, we see that in our surveys all the time. People now know, like they've known for a long time that uh, smoking kills, it causes cancer, it causes all kinds of other uh, problems, cardiovascular problems, uh, respiratory problems, etc. People are aware of that. So the warning labels is just like another way. It's a, it's another push. It's a, it's a pulse. Sort of, okay, there's you have the cigarette, they see it. Okay, maybe this time it'll make a difference. And I will agree with you that for many people who smoke, maybe most people who smoke who have that rebellious uh, uh, part of them, the uh, labels on the individual cigarettes are not likely to make a huge difference. It's okay. I still applaud the government for doing this um, because as uh, my colleague Rob Cunningham mentioned uh, in the blurb that you broadcast before we started to speak, 
Um, even if 1% of people who smoke stop smoking as a result of this, that's a huge savings in health uh, costs and in death. Well, I know one of the things that uh, I'm married to a smoker, uh, just so you have that context in the, uh, the the framework of our conversation here. One of the things our family doctor has said is that uh, at, the bo- at the base of this, if you're going to get somebody to quit smoking, they really have to want to make that change. That's true. But most people who smoke want to stop smoking. Uh, that's also clear over and over again in surveys that we do. Um, yeah, and um, most people who smoke make at least a, one quit attempt each year. Um, so uh, it's not easy to quit smoking. And our research demonstrates that it'll take upwards of 20 times on average for a person who smokes to actually um, successfully quit. Well, with all of the measures that have uh, come online since the 60s, and you said that's when we fairly first got the indicators of just how damaging cigarette smoke could be, and we, we drew the line between uh, the health impacts, things like uh, cancer of all sorts, and uh, and its relationship to smoking and, and nicotine and tobacco and the burning of all those substances. Um it, what seems to have worked more most? What has been the most successful attempt? We've uh, had uh, the ban on smoking in restaurants and bars. We've had, uh, you know, restricting uh, smoking from the workplace and putting it out of doors. We've had all of these messages that have come in, warning labels, PSAs, um, sin taxes, increasing the price of cigarettes. What has been the most successful? It's price. It's the taxes, uh, uh, which uh, are the are the most effective. And you know, Canada, Ontario included, you know, has uh, used that measure somewhat, but not sufficiently. There's plenty. There's still plenty of room to raise taxes. Ontario has the lowest rate of taxes on cigarettes in the country, um, and we could probably double our taxation rate. And if we doubled it, we would decrease uh, the uh, proportion of people in the population who smoke substantially. As a suggestion, um, would you have to incorporate, you know, at least taking maybe some of the tax money and put it towards cracking down on organized crime and illegal cigarettes? Because some people will just go from buying legal smokes to buying illegal ones. You know, absolutely. More needs to be done to uh, uh, in, enforce the laws that we have uh, uh, about the illicit market for cigarettes. Far too many people are able to access uh, these cheap, untaxed cigarettes, um, and uh, the government uh, has to do more to crack down on that. So the uh, the latest labels that will go right on top of the cigarettes themselves, um, that will, I, I think we're going to see the rollout come next April. Is that correct? Uh, so I understand. Yeah. Um, is the focus then going to be on vaping and doing more about that in the months and years to come? Well, you know, the government has been, uh, you know, taking some measures uh, against vaping. The, the concern is for people who don't smoke, young people who don't smoke or picking it up, it's become in the eyes of some people, an epidemic. We have some 15% of uh, kids in high school, grades 11 and 12, uh, who have vaped at least in the past 30 days. Uh, And this is really concerning because as we mentioned earlier, those young people easily become addicted to the nicotine and they will become lifelong vapors, possibly also um, uh, transferring over to cigarette smoking. That's a huge concern. The government of Canada has been looking at banning flavors in e-cigarettes, uh, 
which would be a great way to prevent young people from starting to use them. But for some reason, that uh, movement seems to have frozen at the federal level. Uh, and um, we are really wondering what's going on there. Um, why is Canada not moving forward on uh, prohibiting flavors uh, in e-cigarettes uh, for people um, who are not smokers? Yeah, that seems like a, a strange place for them to have stalled out. And I guess more pressure needs to be brought to bear in order for more to be done on that front. Yes. Well, Robert, thank you so much for your time. And thank you. Dr. Robert Schwartz is the Executive Director of the Ontario Tobacco Research Unit. He's also a professor with the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The province is calling it back to basics. Bill 98, the Better Schools and Student Outcomes Act, was passed before the summer break at Queen's Park. It includes things like school board transparency on teacher PD days and student attendance rates, among other things. Colin DeMello, the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, has some details. The province now wants to pull the curtain back on PA days and reveal exactly what goes on when classrooms are closed. In a memo issued last Friday, Education Minister Stephen Lecce is directing school boards to publicly post information about PA days, including the topics or focus, the entity hosting the activities, the format, the learning and delivery methods, the content, the presenters, the resources, at least 14 days in advance of the PA day. Joining us now is Karen Littlewood, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Hi, Karen. What's your reaction to that? Hi, Shona. It's good to talk with you. My my reaction, well, first of all, I love getting an email at 4.56 on Friday afternoon in the summer. Uh, Bill 98, though, was not news to us. It came out in the spring and we did have some concerns with it. This particular information about the PD days, 14 days before, that's great. Um, I don't have a problem with it at all. In fact, in reality, um, quite often I would find out as a teacher the night before the PD day what was happening. But many of those dates are mandated by the ministry already. So I'm not even really sure why the minister is making a, a story out of this. Yeah, we call those late afternoon emails on a Friday. <laughs> the Friday news dump. Uh, yes. <laughs> just so you know. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that I was wondering is, like, do parents really care? Do they want that much information about a PA day? So I've been teaching since 91, and I don't recall a single incident where a parent has said, what did you do on the PD day? Or what are you going to do on the PD day? I do recall colleagues saying, what are we doing on the PD day? But you know, parents would be able to at any point in time to call the school, to talk to the teacher, to ask the principal. I just really don't know who the parents are the minister has been talking to who've been demanding this. Transparency is great. Well, you know, it seemed like they were trying to do a bit of a dig on teachers by getting really deep into yes. what all of these details were. And I think unnecessarily so. Well, that's what it's exactly what it felt like. So I try not to uh, catastrophize, but that's what it felt like to me that this is an attack on teachers again, which, you know, unfortunately seems to be the modus operandi of the government. I, I think what we'd rather have is recognition of the profession um, and what we do for the students of the province. And we would appreciate the government investing in education so students can get the best education possible. Well, one of the other points that uh, somebody made with regards to this, there isn't, uh, you know, a profession or a worker right now that doesn't wind up having to spend at least part of their day every so often retraining because of different advancements. 
Yeah, no, exactly. That's that's what we want. In fact, many teachers right now are taking courses over the summer in order to be better qualified. And that's not just the teachers, it would be others who are working in the education system do a lot of work on their own but this is during pd days which is pay time those that other training is done at the employee's expense on their own time paid pd time where the government or the school board or the school has said this is what i want you to know there's no problem with that that is a part of the education system in ontario well you know the deep dive on pa days is obviously getting a lot of attention but karen are you aware of other items in the better schools and student outcomes act that well parents probably should be aware of. I really think they should be aware of the clause now that the government is going to allow people who are in teachers college. So these are individuals who have not yet graduated from teachers college. In the past, they've always been in a classroom with a teacher, an associate teacher, a mentor who will watch and guide them, give them information and feedback. They are now going to be able to work on their own in the classrooms. I think in a province like Ontario, where we have 40,000 qualified teachers who are not working in education that some of those people maybe would want to be working in education rather than taking the students who aren't quite ready yet. Well, and there was also a certification for internationally trained teachers cutting it down from 120 days to 60 days. Yeah, so what we've heard from from teachers coming from other countries is they're really challenged by the Ontario College of Teachers in getting their certification. We don't have a shortage of teachers in the province. In fact, we have many, many teachers. What we have a shortage of is those good working conditions and the respect for the people working in education. So if somebody comes to Ontario, they're fully qualified, they want to work in education. Yes, we should be facilitating that to make sure that we have a qualified, trained professional in front of the students. We're about four or five weeks away from the start of school. Where do things stand as far as the contract talks are concerned? Oh, well, we had <laughs> two dates for bargaining in July, one for our education workers and one for our teachers and occasional teachers. And we have one date scheduled this month in August, and that is it. So it is unlikely you will hear of any deals prior to Labor Day when we don't even have bargaining dates scheduled. Yeah, there was um, one of the headlines I saw when I was doing some background uh, uh, to do this interview was, you know, it's unlikely that there's going to be a deal before June. Is there a ballpark as to where, um, you know, I mean, you said there were two dates in July, one in August. Any, Any plans on the horizon? I think that's a question for the government. I think when they decide that they want to get a deal and they're going to come to the table, when they're going to respect the teachers, the education workers of the province and say, you know, enough is enough. Let's let's get a deal and let's move on. Let's provide that stability. Our OSSTF members, people working in education over the last couple of years through a whole lot of hard times have been there for students. We've delivered. We've done exactly what's needed for students. Uh, the government's setting standards and priorities and goals. But what they're not doing is putting the money in to back those priorities and goals. Well, you know, it kind of makes you wonder if, you know, the province wants to do such a deep dive on on PA days and have all of this information posted. Is there any information on what MPPs are doing right now? 
<laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I think you watch Twitter and see the barbecues and the events that are happening, but I'm not hearing a, a whole lot of other um, action that's happening. There were a couple of by-elections that just happened, and I understand the Ford government's not too happy about the results there. But I think the people of Ontario are speaking up and saying what they want to see in the future for Ontario. And uh, I'm hoping that the government is listening, that they're going to come to the table, respect the education workers, but more importantly, respect the students of the province. Ontario deserves better. Ontario students deserve better. Well, then it's hard to understand why there isn't uh, a, a deal done when the, the province is sitting on a huge pile of cash. It would be nice to have the stability of a contract for both teachers, students and parents. Yeah, exactly. I think they could have come out with a balanced budget, but they have some money they put into contingency and not to get too technical for the listeners. But, you know, Bill 124, which was the bill that limited wage increases to 1% for three years, has been challenged. The unions who fought it won. The government is still appealing it, which is problematic uh, when you speak about taxpayer dollars and how they're being spent. But I think that, that contingency money is exactly for that, so that when they lose the appeal, that there's going to be a payout. Just, you know, let's let's just move on here. Let's let's get deals, let's get settled, let's move on. So what are the key issues that you want to see um, uh, the government um, agree to? What, what are you looking for in the in the contract talks? Well, we're watching around the province as male-dominated fields are, are getting quite significant increases. Um, and even the nurses with their arbitration that they recently had, looking at the percentage increases that, that they have. We're just, we're looking to be able to to, to to be active participants in our communities to make sure that we are keeping up with the cost of living or inflation. It's up and down, but you know we, we need to make sure not just about the money, but about having the adults in the classroom. And it's not just the teachers, it's the whole education team. And rather than cutting um, education workers, support staff jobs, we need to make sure that everybody is there working and supporting the students of the province. Well, again, as uh, as time drags on, um, with there being no deal, there being very limited, if any, uh, talks happening, you know, inflation is not, I mean, it's come down a little bit, but it's still a big challenge. And it's a big challenge for teachers who have been, what, over a year now without a contract. Yeah, exactly. You know, we are all taxpayers of the province. We all contribute to society in the province. And what we're doing is we're hoping that the government is going to invest in education and make sure that the students of the province have what they need for this coming school year and for years to come. In the uh, the days that you have been able to, or at least the, the days that were scheduled for talks, were there any talks? Was there any progress made? <laughs> there is very little progress and we hear from our members all the time you know you send out a bulletin and an update and it says nothing and we have to keep saying to them that's because nothing happened we are really not getting anywhere when the government decides they want a deal we will have a deal um any ways to influence them to get down to the table and talk more <laughs> summer is always a tough time but you know yeah, fall is no, coming exactly and what the, when they they come out and they're talking about pd days and reporting on pd days it doesn't sound like their focus is in the right position so you know we continue to lobby but uh, our members are watching carefully to see what happens and they want nothing more than to have a deal and to be able to move forward Especially when, you know, certainly the OSSTF's position on the deep dive on PD days is great. Post it all. Let people see what, what we're doing on those days. 
I've done a lot of media over the last couple of days and I just find the question so funny because it's it's just I don't know it's it's like the little red herring out there it's a distraction um, perhaps to distract from the loss in the by-elections I don't know it's um, it just doesn't make sense to me that this is what we're focusing on. Um, it doesn't seem to have worked in, qu- no, in fact yes. quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's given you well, a, a you good know, I, I hope the MPPs are enjoying their summer and they're going to come back and, and be ready to work. Well, no doubt we'll be speaking with you again, Karen. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. It was great talking to you, Shona. And you as well, but not on a PD day because clearly you're very busy. Exactly, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Karen, Karen Littlewood is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's been disappointment on a number of levels, with Team Canada being ousted from the FIFA Women's World Cup going on in Australia and New Zealand. Perhaps one of the things weighing on the team was their contract and the interim compensation deal. It wasn't actually reached until about four days after the tournament began. Dr. Anne Pegararo is the co-director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport, and she joins us now. Good morning, Anne. Good morning. You know, I can't believe how difficult it must be, or I can't even imagine how difficult it is to go into something like the Women's World Cup knowing your compensation deal hasn't actually been sorted out. I think it it was probably the worst circumstances for them, you know, they, the distraction from that, the concern they would have while they're trying to focus on on winning each match as it comes up uh, would have been very difficult for them. Uh, and, and do we know why it took so long? And it was like four days in. And this is just the interim compensation package. Right. I think we've seen, you know, uh, since all these issues came to light, we've seen some change in leadership at, at Canada Soccer. Um, I think we've seen some honesty from their new um, uh, leader about about the financial situation. And and that's my guess. My guess is that uh, it took a while for them to be able to figure out how to pay from the money that they don't have um, and to reach something that was equitable. And I would say those two sides were probably uh, differing in what their definition of equitable would have been for both the men's and women's teams. Well, yeah, it's interesting because the statement that was put out by the uh, by Team Canada basically said, this deal ensures equal pay to the men's team, quote, within the constraints created by Canada Soccer's financial situation. Um, that is sending a message, but what message is it? Well, you know, I think we're seeing an organization that is uh, struggling to deal with a uh, a real crippling business arrangement with the Canada soccer business that a previous board put in place, uh, uh, probably not foreseeing how successful these two teams are right now. And and they're trying to figure a way around uh, the lack of revenue they have and the inability they have to, to profit in some ways off of how good these teams are doing. So they don't really have the revenue streams to properly compensate. You know, and I, I'm kind of a skeptical person by profession and a cynical person by personality. So <laughs> I, I wonder if this compensation, um, you know, for going forward in the World Cup or even winning wasn't actually decided until after the loss to Nigeria, which was a big shock. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we, <laughs> the timing of all of this does seem sort of suspect. Um, perhaps they knew that uh, the team wouldn't uh, achieve what, what, uh, you know, the possibility of winning the World Cup. I I don't know. I think that, um, you know, I just sort of think back to these players and think, you know, they're trying to put their best foot forward on the pitch, and yet they don't have the full support of their federation. And that really has to be, uh, you know, weighted as a factor of what we see in the outcome for the World Cup this year. 
Yeah, it's disheartening to say the least that the team had to decide between compensation and the funding required to hold necessary training camps. Yeah, and I think that's what we're seeing in in the results in this uh, in this World Cup is is not only you know we could argue left and right. Lots of people like to argue about equal pay, but it's actually equal um, access and preparation, which they didn't have. And I think you know the words from Christine Sinclair after the match yesterday were very clear: the world is catching up, and if we don't actually properly invest in our team and prepare them, we are going to slide down the rankings. And and lots of the the work, hard work of her and her colleagues leagues and the generation before them will be lost. Absolutely. And uh, just so people know, we're speaking with Dr. Anne Pegararo, who's the co-director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport. And we're talking about um, the compensation package for the Team Canada. Um, and, and one of the things that I can't help but uh, focus on is as they continue to try to negotiate a contract, um, you know, we are the the Olympic gold medal champs. Um, but here we are knocked out in the first round at, at the World Cup. That's got to be a factor in their negotiations going forward. They've lost a little leverage there. Yeah, and, and I'm sure that certainly was not the plan. Um, but but I think we have to look long term. This women's team, our national women's team, has been the most successful product for Canada soccer for decades. Um, you know, they've got back to back bronze medals and then followed it with a gold medal, the Olympics. Uh, I wouldn't say the World Cup has been our friend, but we certainly have the world's top goal thrower. We have some of the top players who are who are playing internationally for club teams. Um, so while they have lost some leverage, this still is a world class team, um, you know, going into the World Cup ranks seventh in the world, higher than the men's team. Uh, and so they they do still have some of that leverage, uh, but I'm sure the disappointing results is going to factor in some of the future conversations. Well, and, and it happens in soccer as well as, you know, several other sports. And we've had this part of the conversation before, uh, you know, the women's team higher rank than the men's team. It happens in rowing. Uh, it's happened from time to time in hockey as well. Um, and, and yet the compensation level for women lags behind. Yeah, you know, there lots of people will come up with, the, with um, you know, sort of the false arguments of they don't uh, have the same uh, revenue generation, they don't have the same sponsorship, they don't have the same viewership. And yet we're seeing every single time a woman's uh, sporting event is put on internationally, put on television, we're breaking viewership, we're breaking attendance records, um, and there's a huge demand for it. We know there is a market for women's sports. It's just that we've default expected men's sport uh, to be the, the place to put our money. So, you know, <laughs> I firmly believe that that individuals who want to make a return on investment, women's sport is the place to put your money um, and to properly compensate these athletes. You're going to see world class results. Well, one of the other things that I think has to factor into this entire conversation and, and on a broader scope as well, that I remember when. Um, sponsorship in sport of any kind was a no-brainer for a lot of companies. That's that's changed in the last several years. They want to see a little bit more um, of, of an ethical footprint from a lot of these organizations before they put up their money. They're not just writing a check every year. Yeah, I mean, we've certainly seen that what's what's unfolded with Hockey Canada. I think that sponsors are shy of this, uh, you know, deal with Canada soccer business that that's going on. Um, and they really want to be able to support the players directly. It's not possible the way the current deals are structured with within soccer. Um, and and yet we do know that that people who are fans of women's sports are more loyal to sponsors than they are uh, to sponsors of men's sports, you know. And, and so we do know that the return on their investment is there, but the, the trust in the organizations is, is part of the equation and part of the problem.
Yeah, and one of the things that I find really disheartening is that when there was uh, a, a, a lot of sponsorship, it was taking sport away from it being completely amateur level, which meant that these athletes would have to train at a world-class level while trying to hold down, you know, maybe a couple of jobs just to make ends meet. Um, And so taking the part-time jobs out of the equation and allowing these athletes to fully train as they should just to increase the level of athleticism and competition was good for the sport all around. And, And I'm wondering if we're in a state of flux with regards to that. Yeah, and I, I would totally agree. I think that we've seen that, that that's the way to go when we're when we actually pay women and give them the proper amount of funding. Um, they they do excel because they can focus on their sport. But what we need to focus on is every other part of that professional environment, right? So like like you said earlier, the number of preparation games, the proper money for training camps, uh, the support staff, physiotherapists, trainers that they need, all of that that's in the sort of sport professional ecosystem for men needs to be there for women. We're seeing a rising rate of ACL injuries in women in soccer in particular. And there's there's certainly different factors, but one of them is we've increased the workload of, of, of these women, having them play similar uh, number of matches as the men, but we haven't given them the same training to get to that point, nor do they train on grass pitches all the time or have the same access to support staff. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole ecosystem of, of equality and support that we need to achieve uh, great results internationally. And, and one of the concerns that could be on the horizon, I mean, um, you know, the Commonwealth Games, Hamilton, backed out of uh, supporting it because the cost of putting on games like that has become so huge, it's prohibitive. So when you have those kind of um, multi-sports um, competitions going on, uh, fewer and fewer areas are able to even put them on. That could be another threat to sport overall. Yeah, I mean, we saw recently Australia pull out from from the games as well. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, we're seeing increased costs, and those costs are across the board on different parts of putting on an event. Um, security, you know, the threat of, of of and what we're seeing in the impact from climate change is playing it out in sport in terms of timing and locations that can actually put on winter sport or summer sports safely for athletes. So the factors around putting on these multi sport events uh, for for host nations like Canada have increased significantly. And, you know, at some point, the the taxpayers, uh, us as consumers, as much as we might love sport, are also questioning how much money can we put into that to keep it being sustainable. Sorry, I went off on a bit of a tangent there to bring it back. No to, worries. Uh, <laughs> to bring it back to uh, the Canadian women's soccer team and uh, the concerns over their contract and their compensation package. One of the other statements that really stood out to me was, we're deeply disappointed to find ourselves without a more complete agreement. And they added that this isn't over. What are some of the other contract items that are still outstanding? Well, I mean, I think they sort of outline that in their statement, right? They had to make some choices between getting compensated, which they haven't for almost uh, two years now, versus adequate training. Um, you know, uh, the benefits that you would get in terms of of uh, travel and proper support for that travel, not traveling economy class, uh, friends and families being able to support and come to major events. So I think there's a lot of, of aspects of equality that need to be sorted out and they're going to keep talking about this we we always seem to focus on on the pay and it's certainly very important for women athletes to get paid but i feel it's just as important for the entire professional ecosystem to be there for them and so that you know we saw our men's team recently um have to at the last minute scramble to get someone to help support a charter flight for them to a game so we know that overall um you know canada soccer and the financials are having an impact on on performance and preparation for our national teams 
I'm a very short person. I can't imagine elite athletes being comfortable flying economy as they're going around the world in order to play their sport. Um, I think that's something people need to remember as well. But uh, we've got to leave the conversation there. Dr. Ann Pegararo is the co-director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport. And thank you for your time. Great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.